This was the last discourse I had with that pious and worthy divine, who was soon translated from his painful labors, we hope, to eternal rest. And since the former editions of this account, I have understood in my conversation with many divines in and about this city, and by letters from the remotest parts of this land, and from foreigners, in short, from many whose faces I never saw, into whose hands this account has fallen, that the piety of many persons, especially of the younger sort, has been evidently enlivened thereby, and that it had been read by many of them with a very surprising joy. Yea, in some parts of this nation several divines of considerable character have met together to express their unanimous satisfaction and joy in these proceedings, of which they have given us account by letter. And on this occasion it comes to be known that in some places the very scope and design of these societies have been begun and continued by several pious persons within the compass of a few years past, who knew nothing of these London societies, nor had so much as heard any report of them. In a certain town, which I forbear to name, some discreet and serious persons, considering the great benefit of a strict observance of the Lord's Day, came to a resolution to meet together on the evening before it, to enliven each other's affections towards spiritual things, as a meet preparation for the duties of the sacred day following. And finding the great advantages of this practice, they continued it for the space of three years. And then hearing what was done here in London, so suitably to their inclinations, they were lifted up with joy, and betook themselves to the same method. In some parts of the county of Lincoln, a most profane custom had long prevailed to spend the three Lord's Days after Lamas, and of late many before it, in horse racing and other riotous diversions. The disorder was endeavored to be suppressed in Cromwell's days, but in vain, and afterwards by some gentlemen of the country, but with no better success, so that it had now for several years past been lamented by serious people as an inveterate evil which was now to be redressed. But it pleased God for a few years past to stir up the spirits of the ministers of the adjacent parishes with such zeal and indignation against the scandalous profaneness that they took their constables and other proper assistance with them and appeared with such courage and resolution against this rude assembly that the whole multitude was overawed and put to flight. So that on such Lord's days, when there used to be many hundreds of this lewd mob, you could only have beheld several devout ministers with their constables walking their rounds or if any vain persons looked that way, their next care was to flee with such speed as might secure themselves from apprehension. And it is hoped that the same care, continued dearly in this and other places, will perpetually prevent the like disorders, to suppress which they resolve not to be wanting, as a minister informed me from the place. Nor is the benefit of this pious undertaking confined by the boundaries of this our nation. The morals of her sister kingdom of Ireland have been happily improved by it. Yea, the accounts sent us from persons of the most eminent learning and piety in distant countries inform us of the sensible vigor and life of religion which has been excited amongst them by what they hear of its increase amongst us. The pious and learned Dr. Frank, professor of divinity in the city of Hale in Saxony, writes thus concerning this manner to gentlemen in London, January 21, 1700, The eminent success of your pious undertakings has been made known to us in Germany by the Reverend Dr. Jablonski, chaplain to the newly crowned king of Prussia, who hath translated the account of your societies out of the English into the German language. Nor has this gentleman's pains proved unuseful, for besides the good it has done to many particular persons who have been thereby awakened to a greater concern for their spiritual edification, a great number of the citizens of Nuremberg, who had a little before begun to meet at each other's houses in order to their mutual improvement in the knowledge of the truth, are by this book mightily encouraged and invigorated in good things. As a very pious minister, 
who with two other divines is wont to preside at these meetings, has in the name of them all informed me from the place. And indeed the field of our Lord waxes more and more wide unto harvest, and the true favor of the gospel daily increases amongst persons of various ranks and conditions, both men and women with a general desire of living suitably thereunto. A very learned and pious foreigner, who is pleased to favor me with his correspondence in a letter of his March 14, 1700, informs me that not only at Nuremberg, but also at Augsburg and Radisbon, they find great benefit of their religious societies, and that some great persons begin to relish the divine favor of a religion, among whom, alas, too many are so deeply immersed in carnal pleasures that they have little taste of spiritual joy. I forbear to recite other extracts of foreign letters, and shall only observe that as these happy effects upon other nations afford manner of comfort to such as have engaged in them here, so their noble victories over the impudence of public enormities at home serve to encourage them in the pursuit of the scattered forces of the Prince of Darkness. The rather because the Lord of Hosts seems to fight for them, partly by dispiriting and intimidating the actors of vice and profaneness, who have been heretofore undauntedly bold and hardy in the commission in it, and partly by exciting the spirits of such as oppose them, even to a pitch of bravery, which somewhat resembles those of whom it is said in Scripture that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. And then we always find that they prevailed and came off with victory and success. So it is beyond question that if such as are of eminency amongst us did more generally give their assistance to this divine and glorious work, it would run on with vigor from one end of the land to the other. And how much this would tend to their comfort and glory, in that day wherein great men must give an account of their talents of power and authority, before that righteous judge from whom they have received them is not to be expressed, nor on the contrary can we conceive the horror and confusion, the regret and anguish, which shall then overwhelm such as drowsily forget or cowardly hide or basely misemploy these weighty talents. Of the rise of these societies about thirty-two years ago, I do not here undertake to give an account of all the pious fellowships of you, which have been amongst us in time past, which we may hope has been the practice of serious young men in all ages and among all the two various denominations of Christians, but to give a short narrative of the original of these regulated societies which are now through the grace of God conspicuous among us for many good works, and which if duly encouraged may very much contribute towards the support, honor, and advancement of these three kingdoms in the church and state, and yet are too little known to very many among us. Now, as far as I am able to trace their first rise, it was thus introduced by the gracious providence of God. It is now about two and thirty years ago that several young men in the Church of England, in the cities of London and Westminster, were about the same time touched with a very affecting sense of their sins, and began to apply themselves in very serious manner to religious thoughts and purposes. As to their manner of life before this, I am informed that though some of them had been guilty of great neglect and contempt of religion, they became very affectionate servants of God afterwards, even to an eminency in the judgment of some, who with wonder considered their happy change. Yet the greater part of them were such as had enjoyed a sober education, and had not shared in the scandalous and heightened enormities of these latter days otherwise than by their having been too insensible of the dishonor done to God by them. But they now began to look on their own and other sins in another manner. I was about at that time made privy to the spiritual sorrows of one of them, who with floods of tears lamented that he had not till then had any affecting apprehensions of the glorious majesty and perfections of Almighty God, nor of his infinite love to men and his Son, Jesus Christ. 
and that he had not before felt any just convictions of the immense evil of every offense against God. Though it be but, said he, in the willful neglect or misperformance of any duty to him. But now he saw and groaned under all this, and in very sharp and pungent convictions. And withal perceiving the universal corruption of human nature, and the deplorable crookedness and deceit of man's heart, and with what a world of temptations we are encompassed, being withal besieged by many legions of infernal spirits, when he considered all this, his soul was even poured out within him, and he was in danger of being overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. The case was very much the same with several young men at the same time, as he then told me, some of whom had been greatly tempted by the devil, that murderer from the beginning, to lay violent hands on themselves, which was also, he confessed, his own temptation. And that so urgent sometimes that sleep departed from his eyes as well as rest from his soul. In this mournful season, these disconsolate convicted persons often resorted to their ministers for spiritual advice and succor, betaking themselves in good earnest to the ways of real piety and eternal peace. And it many times fell out, as the same persons informed me, that several of them met together at the house of their spiritual physician, seeking cure for their wounded spirits, and so contracted a little acquaintance by these providential interviews. For alas, as he suggested, there needed little other language but that of their looks to discover their inward sorrows to each other, especially when they came prepared to open them to their minister, and they needed no other arguments to incline them to pity each other's case, but to consider their own, there being a propensity of nature to succor those who groan under the like miseries with ourselves, so that by these and the like means they soon contracted a very intimate acquaintance. The benefit of Dr. Hornick's awakening sermons and the morning lectures on the Lord's Day in Cornhill, preached by Mr. Smithy, chiefly designed for the instruction of youth, having occasioned much of this happy work upon the spirits of these young men, they did more particularly apply themselves to these divines for direction, who had been instruments in the hand of God for their conviction. And upon their fervent application to these and other ministers, it was advised that since their troubles arose from the same spiritual cause, and that their inclinations and resolutions centered in the same purpose of a holy life, they should meet together once a week and apply themselves to good discourse and things wherein they might edify one another. And for the better regulation of their meetings, several rules were prescribed them, being such as seemed most proper to affect the end proposed. Upon this they met together and kept at their rules, and at every meeting, as it was advised, they considered the wants of the poor, which in process of time amounted to such considerable sums, that thereby many poor families were relieved, some people put into a way of trade suitable to the capacities, sundry prisoners set at liberty, some poor scholars furthered in their subsistence at the university, several orphans maintained with many other good works. But they were not presently brought to these pious exercises, orders and things of public benefit, to which they are now by the grace of God advanced. As no creature is born in its full perfection, so the improvement of these societies grew up by degrees by conferring one with another, and by their enlarged desires of doing good as occasions and advice were offered them, so that I cannot but recommend Christian society with the greatest earnestness to all sorts of men. It must needs be as useful to magistrates and ministers in carrying on their arduous work of regulating and informing men's manners, as daily experience shows it to be to artists and tradesmen, who join together in companies and societies and find their arts and interests advanced by a multitude of heads and hands, so that we may very properly pronounce Solomon's woe to him that is alone. These young men soon found the benefit of their conference one with another, by which, as some of them have told me with joy, they better discovered their own corruptions, the devil's temptations, and how to countermine his subtle devices, 
as to which each person's communicated his experience to the rest. It seemed proper for the management of their common stock for charitable uses to choose two stewards as the managers of their charity, and the two first stewards that I find after diligent search were in the year 1678, whose names I have by me with a recorded succession of them to the beginning of the reign of King James II. In this unhappy juncture, the face of the Reformed religion began to be clouded, and all private meetings were suspected. And now, alas, some of these persons, not having digged deep enough to have a firm root in religion, began to shrink and give back like the seed in our Savior's parable, which had no deepness of earth. They were afraid of the jealousy of the state against them, especially when they saw the bloody and merciless executions in city and country with which that reign began, which dyed it of such a crimson color as rendered it frightful to many, particularly to these young proselytes, upon which some of them forsook their wanted assemblies, and getting loose from their strict rules and good society, they grew cool in religious concerns and some of them grew vain and extravagant. But through the grace of God there was not a total tergiversation among those young disciples of our Lord, but on the contrary some of them being enlarged by others, who till then had not been of this society, being also grieved at heart to see some of their brethren turn their backs on the day of battle, and being animated with holy zeal against the growing interest of popery, which then appeared not only open but in armor, they took a more vigorous resolution than ever, to do what in them lay towards the maintaining and increasing the purity and power of religion in themselves and others. And seeing that the popish mass was then publicly celebrated, not only at the royal chapel, but in other public places, they set up at their own expense public, public prayers every evening at eight of the clock at St. Clement Danes, which never wanted a full and affectionate congregation. And not long after, they set up an evening monthly lecture in the same church to confirm communicants in their holy purposes and vows, which they had made at the Lord's table. And by this public lecture, which was greatly frequented, many were confirmed, both in the profession and practice of the true principles of primitive religion. For they were preached by the most eminent divines about the city, from whose lips and pens popery received such wounds as all her art will never be able to cure. It was the design of these young men, from the first framing of their societies, to conceal their names from public knowledge, lest it should seem to be a device to catch the applause of men, which is but a very poor manner, and an aerial blast of little importance if attained, and usually of as little continuance. They looked upon it, therefore, with just disdain, and fixed their hearts on those exceeding great and precious promises which the unchangeable God has set before men. But they had now a particular reason for concealing their names from all but their ministers and a few friends, for the eyes of Papas, then in power, were intent upon them, who, together with those their undersetters, whom gained in the promises of court favor, had brought over to their party, pried narrowly into all they did, so that, so that they saw they had great reason, as well as the primitive Christians, to use the wisdom of the serpent, whilst they as carefully retained the innocence of the dove, especially being in the near neighborhood of the court, which was then filled with foreign and domestic zealots for popery, or with crouching false friends to Protestancy. In this juncture, upon advice, they changed the name of society for that of a club, and instead of meeting at a friend's house who might be endangered by it, they adjourned to some public house or other where they could have a room to themselves. And under the pretext of spending a shilling or two, they conferred seriously together in the same religious manner as formerly, by which honest artifice they carried on their good design without interruption even to the end of that unhappy reign. Their Christian admonitions and good discourse useful to others, concerned to bring in others, 
This their constancy, piety, and good service to the public in so hazardous a juncture made them more known and more much esteemed at the beginning of the reign of King William and Queen Mary. Those instruments of God's providence for the restoring of our religion and liberty when the public enjoyment of both were just expiring. The first design of those who joined in this religious fellowship looked no farther than the mutual assistance and consolation one of another in their Christian warfare that by their interchange counsels and exhortations they might the better maintain their integrity in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But as their sense of the blessedness of religion and the value of immortal souls increased, they could not but exercise bowels of compassion towards such as discovered little concern about these important manners. This inclined them to endeavor, by discourse with their acquaintance in proper seasons, to press upon them those divine arguments whereby themselves had been roused out of a state of carnal insensibleness, and finding that the grace of God many times seconded these, their Christian admonition, to good effect, they became more habituated to good discord, especially where there was any probability of civil acceptance of it. Much that at length they could not but stand amazed at the success which it pleased God to give them. One of them to whom God had given a very deep sense of religious manners and a very moving manner of expressing it, had such success that he had under God induced most of his intimate acquaintance at least to an outward reformation. Upon this they made a private order at one of their assemblies that everyone should endeavor to bring in one other at least into their society, which they did to good effect. For I heard a very serious person bless God with great affection that ever they made such an order and took such resolutions. For, said he, this put one of them upon discourse with me about those things which till that time I little minded and which now I can never forget. This may recommend good discourse upon all proper occasions and company, which wherever it is piously designed and seriously performed will be blessed of God to more excellent purposes than we can without trial conceive. As our sober young men found great joy in the serious application of their souls to religious manners, and in the society of those, those who joined with them in it, so were they not a little grieved from day to day by the profane and filthy conversations of such as proclaimed their contempt of God and religion in the open streets. And therefore they longed in their minds for a legal suppression of their scandalous enormities, of which they complained often one to another and much lamented them in their prayers to God. And since a magistrate cannot punish a transgressor with righteousness but upon due conviction, and whereas few are so rash as to trespass before the face of righteous magistrate, it is absolutely necessary, in order to suppress public sin, that such persons, before the illegal fact is done, take care to inform the magistrate of it. For the execution of justice depends as much upon the proof of the manner of fact as upon the execution of the penalty of the law, and where either the informer or the magistrates fail in his respective duty, justice is obstructed, and the efficacy of the law annulled, iniquity cherished, and the wrath of God provoked. For if none give evidence against a transgressor, none can be punished, and all penal laws are vain. Besides, it is one great design of the temporal punishments of vice by the laws of God and men to render it ignominious and to bring shame upon the committers of it as an admonition to others that all may hear and fear and do no more any such wickedness. Now this way of discountenancing vice is utterly lost where such penal laws are not put into execution. And the contrary takes place, namely the transgressor goes impudent and comes to glory in his shame and hereby the community is apt to mistake the nature of vice and to admire it. Our associated young men had due convictions of these things, and were sensible that it must needs be as great a piece of charity to bring a profane person by light and temporary punishments to shun eternal torment as to bind the hands of such distracted people as would otherwise tear their own flesh and be their own murderers. 
and therefore they were ready to do all that became them in their places to check those public and scandalous sins, which were become very insolent in this city, and indeed very crying. They only wanted some directions to manage this affair in a due manner, according to the law, and to be countenanced by some magistrates in a work so proper to his office and so worthy of his regard. And it was not long before a singular providence of God gave them a favorable opportunity to express their zeal for his name in this manner. For about this time, four or five gentlemen of the Church of England, whose names deserve to be had in perpetual esteem, though I have not their leave to publish them here, falling into serious discourse upon the melancholy subject of the iniquity of the times, came at last to a most brave and generous resolution to do all that they possibly could by the authority of our laws to chastise and suppress those impudent vices and impieties which they saw very provoking in the sight of God and very grievous to the spirits of all good men. And forasmuch as some of these gentlemen had made the knowledge of our laws their study, they collected an abstract of our penal laws against vice and profaneness, and drew up such prudential rules as are fit for the legal conviction and prosecution of such as offend against them. And having, in the year 1691, by the motion of Dr. Stillingfleet, then Bishop of Worcester, obtained the Queen's pious letter to the Justices of Peace, to act as it became their post in this important affair, and the justices having been made of very good order thereupon, and the Lord Mayor and Aldermen doing the like, these gentlemen caused copies of all these to be printed, and to be sent all over the kingdom, at their own great expense, and lodged blank warrants in many hands all over the city for the ease of informers and other persons concerned, with many other excellent expedients to further a general reformation which surely is the best of works. Of this one of our pious bishops has given an account to the world, to the just honor of these worthy gentlemen, and to the shame of such as have reproached and opposed their righteous and religious undertaken. Now, this fell in very fitly with the disposition of our societies, who thereupon formed themselves into two considerable bodies for information against public enormities, the one in London, the other in Westminster, the better to advance this work in all parts according to their respective places of abode. And thereupon they gave punctual information to some magistrate or other of those public acts of debauchery and profaneness which they observed to be committed by persons hardened in their sins, still keeping to the rule of the law and the direction subservient thereunto which these gentlemen had given them. And as these prudential methods testified the unblameableness of their conduct before men, they also labored to approve themselves to the all-seeing God by the exercise of the following duties. Number one. Christian poverty of spirit and the sense of their own impurity and imperfection. Number two, a disinterestedness of mind, wholly renouncing all carnal ends. Number three, habitual prayer to God with a courageous and unwearied pursuit of such things as are agreeable to His will and subservient to His glory. Number four, unfeigned charity towards all men, especially to their souls and spiritual welfare. Number five, quiet resignation to the providence of God in all events. I found all these particulars written in a paper which they privately communicated one to the other. These were good and useful preparations for that which they afterwards suffered on the account of their endeavors to suppress the scandalous vices and impieties of those times. For wickedness being at that time insolent and unused to restraint, these persons met with very outrageous resentments and with bitter reproaches and threats from the passionate lovers of vice, Yea, they often ran the hazard of their lives in the prosecution of this design, which they underwent with Christian courage, being supported under God by several of our worthy bishops and pious divines, who told them that if any of them suffered in so divine a work, rightly principled and justly ordered, they would very much resemble the martyrs and confessors of Christ and receive the reward of it in the other world. And in this respect, the Bishop of Gloucester 
and those worthy divines Dr. Hornick, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Edward Stevens have most eminently signalized their zeal for their great master and his work. And whereas our young men found it very often objected in common discourse that they were only a few raw youths that engaged in this work, which seemed particularly to exasperate the persons prosecuted by them, they greatly wished for the concurrence of some grave and elderly persons to countenance and inspirit them in this difficult enterprise. To this our God, who would not suffer this excellent work undertaken purely for his sake, to drop, was pleased by his good providence to administer a very seasonable support. For it fell about this time that the good service of several men, most of them housekeepers in the Tower Hamlets, came to be known which was begun on this occasion. The inhabitants of those hamlets, being much perplexed by pilfering people, picklocks, housebreakers, and such ill persons, some of them began to inquire into the places which were suspected to harbor that sort of people. And by tracing out their places of resort, they soon dived into the true sources of their grievances, namely that these vicious persons living in shameful lewdness and idleness, and having no income by trade or estate to maintain them in it, they betook themselves to robbery, shoplifting, burglary, and picking of locks and pockets to maintain their expensive lusts and lewd companions. Upon this, some of the sober inhabitants of these hamlets set themselves with great concern and undaunted courage to pull down the very nests of these disorders. They got warrants for search and brought all suspected persons to clear themselves in a legal way, and where it was requisite, they demanded security for their good behavior. And whereas some of these who engaged in this work were of the public communion and others of different persuasions, their lesser differences in manners of religion did not in the least divide them in prosecuting of these things which they saw were directly contrary to all religion. And such as did not act personally in this affair, yet perceiving the good that came of it, were inclined to contribute towards it. But there were some things wanting in this undertaking, in the defect of which it was much retarded and had like to have sunk. The one was a methodical way of proceeding, for want of which their endeavors were neither so orderly nor so effectual as they afterwards proved. They also wanted a more compact incorporation of their members into one society or body, which might, which might be moved and guided by the same prudential methods as if they all proceeded from the same soul. And lastly, their fund was low and insufficient to defray the expense. Our aforesaid societies for given informations have considered these circumstances and having admired the zeal and courage of these honest and excellent men in their, these hamlets, and having observed how well they suited to make up what themselves wanted in years and experience, they resolved to concur with them, that their united forces might be the more victorious. And now their resolved work went on with happy success, the one emulating and pushing on the other. And in all, in all cases they acted regularly, and in conformity to the rules approved by the learned in the law. They were instrumental in putting down several open markets that had been kept on the Lord's Day, and in suppressing some hundreds of houses of ill fame, bringing the frequenters of them to do shame and punishment. And by the means of this society alone, above two thousand persons have been legally prosecuted and convicted, and the names of these delinquents are set down in the black list which they have printed, all which have been sentenced by the magistrates as the law directs, and have accordingly been punished. Besides this, the members of this society have legally convicted multitudes of notorious swearers, Sabbath breakers, and drunkards, and their proceedings in all these cases have been so strictly legal and unblameable that they have for many years past received great countenance in the several courts of judicature, and have found very considerable encouragement from the Lord Mayor and courted aldermen who have honorably contributed towards the necessary expenses so great and useful and undertaken. But yet these endeavors of so general a good did not proceed without many a rub, 
If they had, it would have been the first time that virtue had been advanced with ease and smoothness. We must have concluded that either virtue or vice had lost its nature, if the one could supplant and dethrone the other without passionate opposition. Yea, we might have thought that the devil had lost his envy to the good of mankind, or that all the legions of the infernal pit had been cast into a deep sleep, should they have suffered such a brave onset to be made upon the territories of darkness without exerting all the power and interest they had to oppose it. It was therefore no wonder at all that the undertakers of this work met with many difficulties to struggle with in the prosecution of it. In truth, they experienced not only the rude assaults of licentious debauchies, which they expected, but too often the brow-beatings and discouragement of such as were bound by the awful bond of an oath, and the divine trust of authority to do otherwise, which is the most difficult to bear. But there was great hope for, of a full redress to this grievance when there came forth a pious proclamation from their majesties, January 1691, quote, requiring all magistrates, ecclesiastical and civil, in their respective stations to execute the laws of this realm against profaneness and immorality as they would answer it to Almighty God, and upon pain of their majesties' highest displeasure, complaining also, most justly, that by a long-continued neglect and connivance of the magistrates and officers concerned, the dissolute enormities had universally spread themselves to the dishonor of God and the scandal of our holy religion." This proclamation was occasioned by the pious address of our archbishops and bishops to their majesties, as the preamble of it declared. And since this did not fully accomplish its end, it was followed May 16, 1693, by a personal excitation of the justices of Middlesex, to further this work with vigor by the Lord Keeper, in a speech made to them to that purpose, by Her Majesty's special command, and partly by these supports, but chiefly by the good hand of God upon it, this enterprise has gained ground, notwithstanding the many ill turns that have been done it. Insomuch that there are now near twenty societies of various qualities and functions, formed in a subordination and correspondency, one with another and engaged in this Christian design in and about the city and suburbs, all which have set their hours and places of meeting to direct, support, and execute this their undertaking. And this number of the societies for reformation here given, I do not include any of the forty religious societies before mentioned, for though they all agree in the promotion of virtue and opposition of vice, yet their first and more direct design of association seems to be distinguished thus and that the societies for reformation bent their utmost endeavors from the first to suppress public vice, whilst the religious societies endeavored chiefly to promote a due sense of religion in their own breast, though they have since been eminently instrumental in a public reformation. Because of the length of this book, I'd like to move on to the 18th century. The revivals in the 18th century, including Whitfield and Edwards and Tennant and Wesley, but before I do that, I'd like to read the biography of just one more person from the 17th century, the Reverend Mr. Brand. Dr. Annesley, whose non-such zeal in promoting the gospel has been so successful in this part of the world, gives a following account of him in the narrative of his life, wherein he seems to have been actuated by a double portion of the same spirit whilst he writes the story of his friend. He tells us his zeal for promoting the gospel was so extensive that besides his constant weekly catechizing where he recited, he promoted the constancy of it in all schools and places to which he was a benefactor, and engaged all ministers to whose support he contributed to be diligent in it, often examining the conduct and success of those he trusted with it. And besides these, again, he hired several other persons in distant places to catechize children, and all others willing to be instructed, and once a month or oftener rode to visit and catechize them himself and to encourage them to do well. 
and especially those who were old and yet ignorant, and therefore ashamed to come to frequent those exercises, he gave them books or money according to their quality, and to allure masters and parents to send their children or servants. He would also present them with books curiously bound in gilt. And to such as were poor he would give more money than they could earn in the time spent in learning. His discourse with parents and masters themselves was catechistical, and yet not disparaging. All his questions to all sorts so instructively worded that they could not miss a right answer, and his whole method charming and welcome in families, schools, and public assemblies, to both old and young, ignorant and knowing. He exhorted all he came near to catechists or catechumens. He gave away many thousands of catechisms, and many hundreds with expositions, not only of those of the assemblies, but very many of Dr. Combers and of Mr. Thomas Adams' Principles of Christian Religion cleared and confirmed by the Articles and Homilies. Neither would he be quiet until he made his disciple thoroughly understand the points he put them to. In short, our author says, his heart was on his exercise, living and dying, and that he never knew anyone so painful, and at such care and cost about it as he. He dispersed incredible numbers of the most practical, pious sorts of books, not only a small but considerable price, some thousands if not ten thousands of catechisms, many with exposition, some thousands of shepherds sincere convert, a book by Richard Elaine, Mr. Joseph Elaine's of conversion, several of Mr. Baxter's works as his call to the unconverted and his now or never, his saints rest and so on. Particularly he and some others of whom he was chief, having agreed for an impression of 20,000 of Mr. Joseph Elaine's book of conversion, he paid down 50 pounds himself as earnest for the printing and dispersing them through England and Wales, and afterwards procured an impression of 20,000 more to be sold at under rates. He also disposed some writings of conformists, Pink's Trial of Sincere Love to Christ, Cayley of Eternity, Wade of Redemption of Time, Dent's Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven, Scudder's Daily Walk, Rayner's Precepts, and so on. Also Fox's Book of Martyrs in three volumes, and Stephen Charnock's works in two volumes. Several annotations and commentaries on the scriptures and several libraries to young students and candidates for the ministry. Above all, his care and policy was to disperse Bibles by giving away perhaps some thousands, and when he found some were so tender of charging him with such gifts that they had rather be without, he contrived between his friends and himself to distribute them at one shilling and sixpence apiece, on conditions not to sell them again, by which he caught many that refused them gratis, and returned some money towards buying more, and he not only gave such books to assist the poor, but to allure and oblige the rich. He presented them also with books most proper for them, richly bound, to make them the more acceptable. In a word, all houses and places, wherever he came, or could, send, were stored with pious books, where they would accept them. And he never made a journey but in every end, or other place where he lodged or stopped. He employed all the little time he had, and all opportunities he could find, to fasten good counsel, or good books, or both. And all he met with, of what condition soever of which our author gives several instances in page 60 and so on to 65. To sum up his charitable expenses, a notable, prying, intelligent person who lived some years in the same house with him affirms that to his knowledge he spent about 300 pounds a year that way, besides what he could not find out, which could not but be very considerable besides the many large charities he continually procured from others, which no man was more successful in doing, even from the most covetous persons, he sometimes using to say, he would not sell his estate 
because entailed, but he would squeeze it as long as he lived, and that he would accept of no man's estate if he must be tied from using it on spiritual accounts, and he would often pity the condition of wicked rich men. In fine, his zeal for doing good was such, he could as soon cease to live as cease to attempt it. There be in one place where he was contriving to settle a minister notwithstanding his weakness when he died. Such was the life and such the exit of this godly man. The author applies a whole with the same counsel to the reader that our Savior gave to the Jewish scribe. Go and do thou likewise. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.